Matt, how do I sound? Yeah, pretty good. It sounds like you've got a new setup. I do. I broke my microphone arm thing. You got so mad at me that you just you just Hulk snapped it in half. <laughs> a good a good swap and it just span round and then swap. So I'm I'm currently feel like a bit of an amateur because I'm currently just leaning over my desk holding my microphone. Wow, it was me up until now. I had a little tiny tripod that this this microphone came with and then i have a cardboard box full of greeting cards that sits on carrie's desk next to me and so when it was time to record i would grab the cardboard box put it on my desk put the tripod on top of the cardboard box and then hunch over like quasimodo and and record the show oh thank goodness i thought you were gonna say you put the microphone in the box and then use it as like a little mini sound stage (laughs) (laughs) no i'm not an idiot ever the professionals (laughs) But uh, now I have a proper boom mic and I have a pop filter and uh, I have a windscreen and it's quite nice. I can stand up tall. <laughs> I like this. I was on with Anna earlier and, and we were doing sound tests. So she, she told me that I sound fantastic and so much you better. Do. Give us a little run through of your phrases, right? Oh, the phrase. Okay, let me pull up the phrases. Oh, your phrases. You've got like, you know, yeah. like word. You're, you're trying to train your, train your yes, vocal. Yes, yes, yes. Let's see. Let's see here. <clears throat> uh, the small pup gnawed a hole in the sock. The fish twisted and turned on the bent hook. Press the pants and sew a button on the vest. The swan dive was far short of perfect. The beauty of the view stunned the young boy. But why are you doing it in a weird accent? F- you. I sound great. <laughs> <laughs> For some smooth jazz. Smooth jazz with Rue. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we jump into some Watchtower Weekly? A friend of the show, Graham Cluley, shares a story. A North Korean hacking gang targets banks worldwide. The U.S. government has issued an alert about an active hacking team that has used malware to steal millions of dollars from banks around the world. A North Korean government-backed hacking group known as the Beagle Boys with a Z, nice. Uh, are named as the group responsible for the attacks, which are estimated to have attempted to steal as much as $2 billion from Scrooge McDuck's money bin. Ma Beagle was quoted as saying, uh, we'll get your lucky number one dime, Scrooge, if it's the last thing we do. It's <laughs> <laughs> seamlessly made up. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, th- these, these people were obviously not in the meeting where they named all the other <laughs> hacker groups. What, what name is left? Beagle Boys? Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they are a subset of the Hidden Cobra cyber crime group, also known as Lazarus or the Guardians of Peace. Can you remember those? Yep. Yeah, there we yeah. go. I got it. Yeah, they're the ones with the cool names. It's great. No, I think the Beagle Boys is an awesome name for sure. Yeah, it's essentially a bunch of techniques used by a gang, you know, giving themselves names and making them sound cool and everything like that. They're essentially thieves just trying to get money. Yeah. You know, they're doing it through a bunch of ways, like stealing login credentials from privileged users by bypassing access controls and all that kind of stuff, using remote services within a victim's network to kind of persist. Yeah, not good. And a bunch of different techniques. So there isn't kind of a a one-stop shop to 
well, stop them shopping, I guess. Uh, the interesting part about this one is that it, there was it was a typo that ended up being their downfall. They attempted to make a transfer for $20 million to a Sri Lankan nonprofit organization that they called the Shalika Foundation. But unfortunately for them, there is no NGO under the name of Shalika Foundation in the list of registered Sri Lankan nonprofits. So... Uh, that's what tripped some tripped some alarms. Just a single typo. I mean, that's usually what it comes down to, right? You get these emails, and you're like, "This looks legit," and then you find out that they they misspelled <laughs> some basic word, and you're like, "Oh, never mind." That is on purpose, though, right? The people that gloss over the spelling mistakes are more likely to fall for the thing at the end, right? So they're trying to remove the people at the first hurdle, so that by the time you know they've got a higher chance of of getting to the end. Yeah, it's possible. You know who has proven to be impressively scam savvy is my 81-year-old mother. She routinely tells me about like emails that she gets for people trying to do things for her. And she's like, I'm not doing that. They're trying to steal my money. You know, <laughs> like She's like, a guy came to my door the other day asking to see my uh, utility bill. I told him to take a hike. Like He's there just to find out some way to scam me out of whatever savings I have. I was like, good for you, Ma. You stick it to him. Nice. Street smart. My mom has the street smarts. <laughs> That's what I call that. Nice. So people have been speculating what North Korea could want this money for. But the US government advisory gave one possible theory, which was this illicit behaviour has been identified by the United Nations Panel of Experts as evasion of the UN Security Council resolutions as it generates substantial revenue for North Korea. North Korea can use these funds for its UN prohibited nuclear weapons and missile programmes. Well, isn't that terrifying yes very chilling i'm just reading all the all the names all the imaginative monikers <laughs> vivacious gift and electric fish Ooh. these are what the swift system which is the society for world interbank financial telecommunications they use between the internet and swift so these are the um, network proxy tunneling tools yeah very interesting you can read more in the show notes if you want to read kind of about how fast cash attack works or, or any of those things. So what's next? What do we got? So Ars Technica is reporting that uh, Facebook complains that iOS 14 is too private. <laughs> oh, somebody call the wambulance. <laughs> what's a wambulance? <laughs> I like that. Oh, dear. So, yeah, Facebook have warned that iOS 14 privacy controls will tank ad targeting business and is worried that users won't opt into tracking when given the choice. I love that this is a warning. Yeah. Like, this isn't a warning. This is like a celebration. <laughs> iOS 14 is expected to hit iPhones this fall, along with its many new consumer-facing features. iOS 14 requires app developers to notify users if their app collects a unique device code, known as an IDFA, an ID for advertisers. So this is different from kind of other... UUIDs that they seem to generate every time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is this is really interesting. Uh, iOS 14 brings a bunch of stuff that is upsetting people who make money out of advertising or selling data. Anything from things that we've previously covered, which is uh, apps that read your clipboard. iOS 14 now notifies you when, when that happens. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so the change is basically requiring users to opt in to make the uh, IDFA uh, essentially you know, useless. I think this is this is fantastic. I do love that it's that, that Facebook is like, oh, this is a real problem. Like, ever, you look out, everybody. You're like, okay. Well, I imagine it's a significant amount of their revenue. Yeah. yeah, of course it is, because Facebook is free. I imagine that other companies are also reliant on Facebook's revenue for certain things. So I imagine this cry for help wasn't to Apple. 
but it was to the companies that kind of rely on Facebook for advertising. Mm. Almost certainly. You know, the IDFA that we spoke about is a randomly generated code that Apple assigns to a device. So Google assigns similar numbers to Android devices. Apps can then use those codes to tie together user activity. So for example, Facebook, a local shopping app, a local weather app, might all access the same identifier. Facebook and other advertising businesses can then use that to, you know, across apps right? Um, and, and use data to place targeted ads uh, for advertisers. So, you know, you, you go to a, a local shopping place and Facebook's like, ah, this person uses this and ties all the dots together. And that's essentially what they won't be allowed to do anymore. And so it's not just Facebook, but it is that kind of that local shopping app and the local weather app and all, all these different apps that, that make money off advertising. It starts to break them down from being all connected. Yeah. I mean, I can see why they're up in arms about this, but do I feel sorry for them? Not even a little. No, <laughs> no I don't. <laughs> you know, the other one I've been seeing lately that I'm surprised about is uh, how many apps that iOS 14 will prompt me and be like, oh, this app would like to scan your local Bluetooth devices. And I'm like, no, like this app has no business knowing about other Bluetooth devices around me. Like, why, why would it do this? Yeah. So it's, I, I like the, I like how much it's surfacing some of this behind the scenes stuff that, that these apps have been doing. Yeah. I think, you know, tying together user data based on UUIDs and fingerprints and everything like that. I don't, I don't think it's commonly known how much of a profile someone builds about you without you opting into that. So I think anything that highlights your information is shared across these apps, I might even opt into that. Like, really, I mean, I get that 99% probably wouldn't. And like the instant thing is just dismiss. But, you know, maybe I do want that information shared towards smaller local apps that might advertise the right thing to me. Yeah, yeah, potentially. So now the BBC is reporting Uber X security boss accused of covering up hack attack. I like the words hack and attack together. Oh, there. yes. <laughs> They're fan- it's fantastic. But uh, Uber's former chief of security, Joseph Sullivan, has been charged with obstruction of justice in the US. The 52-year-old is accused of trying to cover up a data breach in 2016 that exposed the details of 57 million Uber drivers and passengers. The company has previously admitted to paying the group of hackers $100,000 ransom to delete the data that they had stolen. And, you know, Mr. Sullivan was was fired in 2017 when the data breach was revealed. Oh, this guy was a patsy. <laughs> he was the fall guy. Yeah, I feel like he was the fall guy. Yeah. Yikes. The, the, the charges filed by the U.S. Department of Justice said Mr. Sullivan had taken deliberate steps to stop the Federal Trade Commission from finding out about the hack. Couldn't have done that alone. Yeah. Uh, he is uh, accused of approving a 100,000 payment to the hackers, which was made in Bitcoin. Again, where, like, where did he get this money from if it wasn't sanctioned by the rest of the company? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to see that he has now landed on his feet at Cloudflare. Yeah. Oh. As the chief information security officer. Great. Yeah. Interesting, that one. Jeez Louise. But yeah, they disguised this payment as a bug bounty reward used to pay cybersecurity researchers who disclose vulnerabilities so they can be fixed. I mean, that's pretty smart. (laughs) (laughs) US lawyer David Anderson said, Silicon Valley is not the Wild West. Isn't it, though? I mean... (laughs) It's technically in the West, and it can get pretty wild. (laughs) Pew, pew! (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. He continued, we expect good corporate citizenship. We expect prompt reporting of criminal conduct. We expect cooperation with our investigations. We will not tolerate corporate cover-ups. I mean, yeah, that sounds yeah. good. Good quote. <laughs> <laughs> Stopping by for a chat today is Leslie Carhart. Leslie is an industrial incident responder at Drago's Inc. You may know her as Hacks for Pancakes on Twitter, tweeting grade A quality infosec tweets with occasional 2 a.m. rants about human rights, ICS, and or gin. Uh, Leslie, thank you for joining us today. That certainly sums it up. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so how, how are things? Things are going pretty well for 2020. <laughs> Everything's relative. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit, let's just start out, what is an industrial incident responder? Yeah, so my career has mostly been surrounded around blue teaming, uh, security operations and defensive operations. I moved over recent years more into the industrial side of things. So working in manufacturing, in critical infrastructure, oil and gas, electrical power, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the systems like industrial control systems, SCADA, that, that keep those things running and doing security incident response on those. Wow, that's really, really cool. So how did you get started in that sector, in that industry? Yeah, so I've had a very eclectic cybersecurity career that spans back quite a while. I've done all kinds of different things. And uh, I actually have uh, degrees as well as in my computer degree. I have a uh, degree in electronics and a degree in avionics. And so I've had a background all over the place in kind of non-standard te IT technologies. And it was a natural fit for me to move more into the ICS and SCADA space. Very cool. So can you tell us a little bit more of a deep dive about the work that you do at Dragos? What kinds of things do you get up to on a day-to-day? -day? Yeah, so it's it's really exciting. I love my I love my work. I love my job and I love the mission of our company because we exclusively focus on primarily critical infrastructure, infrastructure in general, but um, things like, like I mentioned, like the water going to people's houses and power going to their houses, things like that, civilian infrastructure. So yeah, so I'm one of the few people in the world who gets called if a power plant gets hacked and uh, flies out and tries to figure out what happened. There's really a limited number of us out there. It's a very new and still to be explored space in terms of analyzing hacking and, and malware that are targeted against those lower level devices that run those systems. So it's pretty exciting work. It's a lot of going to facilities like power plants, like water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants, as well as manufacturing facilities and everything that that entails too. I have to learn about a lot of interesting industrial processes. So I'm, I'm almost afraid to ask, but I also feel that it is my duty to ask, how often are power plants and stuff hacked? So I kind of break the incidents that I respond to into three things. And the first one is, of course, the commodity type attack. So they're getting hit by ransomware, just like everyone else, because there's Windows computers in those environments as well. They're like the things that display the status of the systems on the wall, the HMIs. Those are mostly running Windows, so they can get infected by ransomware too. They're oftentimes running older versions of Windows that are particularly vulnerable. So there's, there's Windows systems out there that get hit by commodity malware all the time. Ransomware is becoming a big problem in those environments because they can bring parts of the system down or make them unusable by the operators. So that's, that's one third of the things because uh, that can be very disruptive. Uh, the second third is insiders. So as you'd imagine, unfortunately, when you have a disgruntled employee in most spaces, they can do a lot of damage. They can delete files. They can destroy servers that all gets 
compounded when you're talking about an environment where there's life and safety on the line and these these process systems that are keeping things running. So that's definitely an aspect to it. It's not always malicious. Anti-security type activities by insiders can be totally uh, unintentional. They can be operators doing things they shouldn't have done, connecting out-of-band connections to really sensitive systems so that they can watch movies, you know, plugging things into the computers, et cetera, et cetera. And, and since those systems are sensitive and old and vulnerable, that can cause a huge impact as well. And then, of course, the last third is advanced purposeful targeted adversaries. So mostly wealth, I, I say advanced, I don't necessarily mean technically advanced, but more sophisticated, more funded and resourced because understanding these systems does take a lot of resources and a lot of time, but those more long-term type adversaries who are trying to get into industrial environments and mostly building footholds to to launch attacks later. That's Wow. Yeah. So I have to imagine, given all of those things, that there's certainly some unique threats in the industrial sector. Can you go a little bit deeper on, on some of those things? Yeah. So it's it's a hard sector for a lot of people in traditional cybersecurity to wrap their heads around because there isn't necessarily an attack every week in that space. You've got to think about what adversaries want. In the IT space, a lot of time, it's just simple money. So exploitation, exfiltration of sensitive information, ad hoc scams to make money, a lot of ransomware. In the IT space, it's very easy to quantify attacks because they're they're visible and their impact is visible all the time. In the industrial space, like I said, most of these are longer term campaigns where adversaries try to build a foothold in a network and understand how the industrial systems work so they can impact it later. It's not hard to do things that mess up an industrial, a digital industrial system. You can poke at it and there might be unforeseen consequences. But to actually get it to fail in a way that you want it to, that takes skill and knowledge. So it takes time for these, these bad people to figure out how to, say, shut off the power to an area or modify a water treatment facility so it contaminates the environment. That's a hard thing to do. You have to understand the process. You have to understand the systems. You have to understand out-of-band controls, safety controls that prevent it from happening. A lot of it is staging. So these well-resourced groups are saying, hey, if I spend a year exploring this environment, I can probably figure out how to do very specific, very bad things to it when I need to as part of like a geopolitical event or some negotiation or other world event that would benefit from their perspective from from tampering with an industrial system. Wow. The long timeline and almost the the spy-like or espionage-like approach to some of these things is fascinating. I have to imagine that you find yourselves having to think in very creative ways and really go beyond sort of the day-to-day and and focus on on that long term. And that's that's got to be complicated. It's not a job for the faint of heart. It's fascinating work, but We have to work with very old systems that have no security products available for them. We have to work with low-level electronic devices that maybe only have serial connections, legacy industrial devices that don't have any documentation for themselves or their protocols. Yeah, it's a a wide open space and it's as broad as cybersecurity itself. There's a lot of differences between the systems that control electrical power and the systems that work in manufacturing plants. So it's a wide space and there's a lot of of diversity in protocols and technologies and ages of, of devices 
So it's it's an adventure every day. (laughs) So what is your number one rule for incident response? So I have two. I'm going to give you two. I'm sorry. Uh, So I teach our class at Dragos on industrial cybersecurity, and I tell two rules to my students. So the first one is hackers are lazy. And that makes all the red teamers really, really mad. Uh, <laughs> but um, what I mean by that, and I know it's an overgeneralization, and I know the red teamers aren't lazy and they work very hard. It's that adversaries take the path of least resistance. If you leave something wide open over here, like an S3 bucket, they're going to attack that and not spend 500 hours trying to exploit your, your very up-to-date and patched firewall. That's silly. If they can just call your admin and social engineer their credentials and use your admin's credentials, why build custom malware? So as we're looking at the kill chain and looking at attacks, it's very important to remember that the attackers, sensible attackers at least, are going to take the path of least resistance. And uh, that sometimes means not using really sophisticated tactics. And the second one is that adversaries have to follow the rules of, of physics and reality, that they have to follow certain rules. So there is not going to be any attack against your environment, no matter how bizarre, that bypasses all the, the tools, tactics, and procedures that we see adversaries use every day. There's no magic out there. An attack still has to be controlled somehow. Your your adversary still has to potentially establish some type of persistence to launch their attack. They're going to do a long-term attack. They still have to action on objectives. So they still have to, you know, exfiltrate data or tamper with a system. So there's always places to detect their activity, no matter how sophisticated they are. And of course, the the cyber kill chain and the ICS cyber kill chain are just models or academic models and adversaries don't do every stage in those academic models, but they usually have to do one or two. So there's always places to detect them. How have you seen cyber threats change during the pandemic? Have there been unique approaches to taking advantage of vulnerabilities that you didn't see before? I see a lot more of it. I can't give a scientific response for that because I don't track like specific numbers of attacks a day. But I'm certainly seeing an uptick personally from my own perspective in in attacks, especially commodity attacks. And that usually is tied to the economy and economic stability of people, not necessarily the stock market, but people being unemployed, people not having enough money. That drives people to commit crimes. It's really simple. It's been true throughout history when people are hungry and the only way that they can get food or get food for their family or keep paying their rent is to use their skills to do bad things. There is a percentage of people who will be driven to do bad things. And certainly since the pandemic started, it's it, we've seen an uptick in all kinds of different malicious activities. So it's very unfortunate that people are being driven to that type of thing, but we've seen it throughout history and we'll continue to see it. As a leader in the security space on Twitter, how do you feel about the community there? Do you think using it as a public forum can bring any lasting change to the industry? Oh, absolutely. I was talking to people about this a few weeks back. I think that there's a little misunderstanding on the word community when we talk about it in cybersecurity. So there is a professional community of cybersecurity practitioners. That's just a fact. If there's a just like there's a professional community of lawyers and there's a professional community of doctors, et cetera, et cetera. 
there's a professional community that if you are a practitioner or a student in cybersecurity, you are a member of. And when we talk about the broader professional community, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about practitioners. But there's also the social communities, and there's probably multiple communities there of people who go to conferences and socialize on various social media outlets, watch certain podcasts, and are parts of different Discord and Slack channels. And those are communities as well. They're social communities. And you don't have to be a member of those. You don't have to be a member of all of them. You might not be a member of one of them. And they're useful, certainly. Back in the before time, ages ago, when I got into the security space in the 90s, it wasn't like this. You know, the, the hacking community back then was not a friendly place to go. Yes, there were very nice people who are still parts of our communities today who were helpful and wanted to help people learn. But there was a lot of animosity there. There was a lot of resistance to people who didn't look or sound like, you know, the old guard joining the community. And it was much more touch and go trying to be a part of it. So I think that online communities have been a way for people to reach people like them across the world, know that there's people who think like them, who are interested in the same things, and, and reach out for mentorship and advice on projects and be a part of things. I think that they can be very beneficial. Of course, there's negative things that go along with that, like any online community or social community. Yeah, I find that the community building aspect of Twitter can be very, very powerful. And it is one of the things that I that I personally experienced when Twitter was just getting started back in the day. There was a very strong development community around Mac and iOS development back then. And it was great to sort of form friendships and share ideas and sort of cut through a lot of the awkwardness that would come from meeting people in person later on. You know, you would, you'd be talking to someone all throughout the year and then you'd go to a conference and maybe you've never met them in person before, but you know, you really, you basically pick up where you left off online just the day before. And in that regard, like it, that community building aspect is is incredibly strong. And it's good to hear that that continues today, because I believe that a lot of Twitter has sort of fallen off in, the, in that regard, and it has turned into a little bit of a, a cesspool here and there. And that happens in the InfoSec community as well, certainly in the cybersecurity communities. There's, of course, there's going to be bad actors out there. There's going to be trolls. There's people who are hostile and don't want things to change. And that's something we have to deal with. And everybody has to make independent personal decisions based on their mental health and their professional goals, whether they want to be associated with other people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, finally, what is a piece of security advice that you have found especially useful? Do you have any go-to security tips for anyone or, or everyone? Understand risk and consequences. I've learned that very, very well in industrial control systems because process operators are very good at knowing that. They, they know what their worst day ever is, and they then it's very easy to map down risk and then crown jewels and then points to monitor, points to hunt in from that. If you understand what your business cares about and what a negative consequence to what they care about would actually be, it becomes much simpler to understand where you need to do your monitoring, where you need to do your hunting, where you need to put your detection, uh, where you need to add layers of defense and depth. And we're very, very bad at that in cybersecurity on the IT side of things, because when somebody tells us to go hunt on a network, look for the bad people, we just start looking for random things like, oh, I wonder if they're exfiltrating data over DNS tunneling. You just start looking for random adversary TTPs. What you should really be doing is thinking about what would actually negatively impact your business and your operations and your employees, the things that you care about. 
and look for those things. Look for the ways that adversaries would cause those bad things to happen, either intentionally or, or unintentionally. And we just don't have a good grasp on that in IT cybersecurity. Wow. Thank you so much. Leslie, this was this was great. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to swing by today and, and share some really cool stories. So uh, is there anything uh, else that you want to leave people with? Where can they follow you online and, and find more about uh, what you do? Sure. I am, of course, on Hacks for Pancakes on most social media. And I have a blog. It's tosiphony.net where I put a lot of educational and security-related articles. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, uh, Anna, can we can we cue up some theme music for uh, the Internet's favorite new segment, Play Your Passwords Right? Of course. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> We're going to go Harry Potter themed again because you guys yeah. did not do so well last time. No, we did not. So this is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. <laughs> I like so it. So the password magic was caught in a breach 73,983 times. And the next password is Wingardium Leviosa. Do we think that's higher or lower than magic? So we, we discussed this a bit last week. I am definitely going less than magic. Same. Because Same. it's complex to spell yeah people are going to mess that so one up both going less yeah and also when you go to spell it in your head you can go no it's leviosa not leviosa <laughs> like does it have is it like is it is it sah or just sa right like you know there's a lot of, lot of yeah. ways you go with this so you are correct yeah with right. 119 times so we both get a point for you that do. Yeah, i just yeah. i just recorded our points okay so the next one is sorting hat what do we think? Higher or lower than Wingardium Leviosa? I'm going higher. Mm, I, mm, <laughs> I think we're going higher. Yeah. You're both going higher. Yep. You are incorrect. Only 81. Yeah, because it's, it's just not as popular, is it? Like, mm. we've got to think these, you know, people are creating these out of their head. Yeah. It's not as obviously Harry Potter, is it? Okay. Sorting hat. 81. 81 breaches on that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't too far off, but okay. So next one we have Muggle. Uh, oh, higher. Higher than Sorting Hat, easy. Mm, I'm going higher, yeah. You are both correct. It is higher at 2,055. Mm, okay, all right. And next, we have Quidditch. Oh, higher. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's up there, I reckon. Higher. Higher. You are correct. It is higher, 2,940. Only just, though. Ooh. Not by much. So we're on equal points now. Come on. Yep, so far. It's going to be a real boring game if you and I keep agreeing. I know. Next, we have... Deathly Hallows. <laughs> okay, lower. Oh. Definitely lower. I can't even remember what the Deathly Hallows were. <laughs> was it like three things? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you had the it wand. It was the wand, the, the cape, and the stone. Yeah. Okay. And they were different bits from his soul, right? What were they things called? Horcruxes. No, those were Horcruxes. It's different. Okay. Ooh, she liked the same trope, didn't she? One word, a <laughs> couple of things under it. Um, gosh. Yeah, I'm going lower. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I gotta go lower too. You gotta go lower. You are both correct. It is lower at six hundred and thirty-two. So next we have Gryffindor. I enjoyed your American accent on Gryffindor. There, that was pretty good. <laughs> higher. Um, I'm going higher. Yeah. You are correct. Three thousand 
827. Amazing. All right, so Gryffindor was 3,827. That's a lot of people using that as a password. Yeah. Now we find out which house is more popular with Slytherin. Mm, Lower. Yeah, lower. So you are both incorrect. It is Ah, 4,020. All right. All right, come on, next one. Okay, so Dobby's sock. Oh, lower. (laughs) What do we think? The fact that anybody has that as their password is very upsetting. Or do they? Dobby's sock. (laughs) Dobby's sock. Without punctuation as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, well, it's obviously less. It's it's lower. It is 17. Yeah. There's 17 people out there that are probably still using the password Dobby's sock. (laughs) It's so specific. Now, this is perhaps my favourite of them all. Okay, all right. You ready? Alas, earwax. Huh? Alas. (laughs) It's when Dumbledore gets gets an earwax-flavoured jelly bean. Yep, and he says, alas. (laughs) This is so specific. I told you my Harry Potter fandom came out at some point. This is ridiculous. It's got to be... (laughs) It's got to be less than 17. Less than Dobby Sock. Like, I've watched Harry Potter, like, what feels like an excessive amount of times. It seems to be every Christmas. And I have, <laughs> I have no recollection of this whatsoever. So, I, um, Alas. I'm going to go higher than, than Dobby. I'm going to go you're higher go than higher. Dobby Sock. All right, so we're both on six points now. So, Matt, you're going lower. Yeah, yeah I'm going lower than the Dobby Sock. Matt's going lower, I'm going higher. All right, All right here we go. One of us is about to take the lead. So... Rue is correct, is higher than Dobby's sock. Do uh, do I just pay attention to different things in these movies? Clearly. All right, last one. Last one is Harry Potter is dead. (laughs) 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 And that's where you get Voldemort going, "Ah, at the end, when he thinks Harry Potter is dead. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a very specific laugh. Harry Potter is dead. Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very weird one. I clearly need to watch the final movies uh, a couple more times because this one's now lost on me. Oh, okay. Oh no, I'm going higher. I'm going lower. Rue is correct with only one person oh, getting caught in a breach with Harry Potter is dead. And there you have it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win. Play your passwords right. If that one person is listening, like uh, one, I feel like. You should probably not listen to this podcast <laughs> if your password is Harry Potter is dead. Oof, yeah. Let that be a lesson to you. So, yeah. I- I'm enjoying this the more specific that they get, I think. Use a unique password, everyone, but oof, generate them. <laughs> Don't, you know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that that brings us to the end of another long waffle uh, that Anna is going to have to edit the hell out of to make usable. So, um, this was fun. And we uh, spent a lot of time talking about things that aren't to do with passwords. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> I mean, it'll become a show. <laughs> All right. Love you both. Love you both. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.